You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome you to Bite Into It, discussing computers and new technology. Tonight you're joined by Simon Brown. We've got Sam Cummings pressing the buttons for us. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. So thanks for tuning in. We are pretty excited about the show this evening. We have uh, Vanessa Paik coming in to talk about the future of work and uh, community management and all the little things that she's got her fingers in. Plus, we will be hearing a lot about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Might, might be debunking some of the myths. Uh, that's coming up later. But before we get to that, let's hit some news. Simon. Macs are so secure, aren't they? You know, there's no viruses. You I've never have... had a virus on my Mac. <laughs> well, there's some people putting paid to that. There's some people working, surprisingly enough, to uh, destroy that reputation. Uh a couple of researchers have created Thunderstrike 2, which just... That sounds like a game I want to play. It just makes me think of ACDC. But, <laughs> uh, it's a sequel to a previous uh, previous worm called Thunderstrike, funnily enough, uh, which... Now, the difference between the two is they both attack the firmware um, in similar ways uh, from reports, but the first Thunderstrike only could attack through the Thunderbolt port from peripherals and that sort of thing, um, anything attached to the physically to the computer. Mm. Thunderstrike 2 can wander about through emails and can just get in there any way, any old way that it can. Um, and, yeah, it, it can really cause some damage. Uh, the worm... Once it gets in, uh, targets a machine's option ROM or lives in the option ROM of peripherals. So it can really cause damage and basically have make you reflash the chip to like get rid of it. So it is now becoming obvious that Macs are vulnerable in the same way as PCs are and as there are more Macs and perhaps... I don't know whether it's safe to say less love for Apple, that there might be more people looking to do damage to Macintoshes the same way as there have been PC bugs written for years and years. Yeah, that's it for sure. I mean, we always knew that it was possible, but years ago it was because the audience for Macs was so much smaller, but for a long time that's not been the case. So I guess it's just it was a matter of time. And I guess there's probably also a fair few more um, organisations using Macs. They're probably used for uh, more critical infrastructure as well in, mm. in some cases. Mm. And, you know, whole departments run on Macs now. So I think it'll be an interesting time for those who have just used Macintosh as an option to say we are now secure <laughs> might not be so easy. So the general advice to people is to keep their operating systems updated with uh, security updates? Well, apparently Macintosh have already uh, worked on a patch for Thunderstrike 1, so we're looking for a patch for Thunderstrike 2. Uh, but the main problem, of course, is that the 
uh, worms like this, which are presented at conferences, aren't really the ones that we're worried about. Mm. It's the ones that are being written that we don't know anything about that uh, could well be out there as we speak. Out there. Okay, protect your thunderbolts. (laughs) (laughs) Cover your ports. Uh, what have you got? <laughs> some news that caught my eye was um, was one of those, it's not there yet, but we're hearing about it and I thought it was interesting enough to report upon. So what's happened is that uh, you you know that people set up charging stations sometimes and you can all, you know, you can plug things in, say at a festival or at a workplace or some people have a little section at home where they've got just got their, their run of power boards and all their different charges and things. What if you didn't have to do that? What if you could be charged? your devices from across the room this is what this technology posits and they're calling it u-beam so a little u big b beam Uh, the company's based in santa monica and the person behind it is a 25 year old woman Uh, her name is meredith perry and uh, there's a lot of people um, quite excited about this technology Uh, marissa mayer chose to invest after spending 15 minutes with her and and that's that's the world that we're in right we're talking about new uh hardware people going in and doing really short pitches to venture capitalists and trying to get their idea up and get it to the next step so that's the sort of um environment that she's living in so in late 2014 um they had just raised $10 million from investors. Which is why they didn't go to Indiegogo, I'm Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that point, they announced that they'd finalised a working prototype. And they have shared that prototype with some journalists. Um, I think it was Forbes who'd had a look at it uh, in detail. But, um, you know, it has its its sceptics because there are plenty of media outlets who haven't had a chance to see it in person yet and they tend to be writing kind of annoyed articles that they haven't seen it for themselves. Wireless charging has been on the agenda for a while now, though, and we've talked about it before. Yeah. Um, So in this case, they're using ultrasound waves, uh, which I don't think we've spoken about particularly this uh, this idea before. Um, Yeah, so the... They uh, they can beam small amounts of power between two uh, boxes positioned a few feet apart. Uh, so at the moment, you know, you're talking like a metre apart and the technology maybe is a little bit unwieldy at the moment. We imagine it's going to get small. Uh, a uh, TechCrunch is one of the people who's had a look at it and they called it the closest thing to magic I've seen, so now we're into the hype world. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty nice, isn't it? I'm looking forward to this, though, because it just... I mean, if this becomes, um, I hate to use the word, but standard, then uh, there goes the end of having someone constantly over the parapet of your desk if you're the only person who remembers to bring the iPhone charger to the office. Mm. I mean, you can, it really could be a way of, I mean, it, it could be, hopefully, I mean, Probably not because, you know, this isn't the world we're living in. But it is an option for actually creating a future charging standard that could charge all manner of devices Yeah. without I mean, living in a world of adapters and wall warts. And yeah, and having to have compatible little port plugs everywhere you go. And we can but dream. Of, yes, exactly. So that's what I've been dreaming about, the U-beam. Well, some people have been dreaming, but they've been nightmares. Uh, <laughs> you probably could not avoid 
uh, the news this week that a bunch of eminent people, including Stephen Hawking, have uh, signed on to an open letter uh, basically urging the world to not develop artificially intelligent weapons. Um, It's... Uh, I mean, autonomous weapons, they say, are, and the quote which is getting a lot of currency, uh, could be the new Kalashnikovs in the fact that, unlike nuclear power, they are uh, able to be... If the technology is developed, then all you really need is some pretty standard parts. You don't... It's not like nuclear power. It's not like uh, any of these sort of large-scale technologies. You... A rogue nation could do it. A terrorist group could do it. Mm. Um, And look, even if it was to be agreed upon by the world, these groups could still do it. But uh, I think the point that uh, this open letter is making is, I think that if it's banned at a global level, then you don't have the large companies producing them and then therefore making money out of them and therefore them being a far more available. You know, it, it's far less likely for a terrorist group to go off and create its own autonomous weapon mm-hmm. if Lockheed Martin hasn't already done the work for them. So We're almost at a pre-Manhattan Project type of state. There, the thing is, is that there is a precedent for banning a, a, a weapons technology before it is actually developed. Mm. Uh, and what has... This, this open letter has been reported on a lot, but uh, it hasn't been directly quoted yes, very I much. Yes, I haven't seen the letter at all. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a little bit long for radio, but I particularly liked the last two paragraphs. So I'm just going to read them now. Just as most chemists and biologists have no interest in building chemical or biological weapons, most AI researchers have no interest in building AI weapons and do not want others to tarnish their field by doing so, potentially creating a major public backlash against AI that curtails its future social benefits, a societal rather. Indeed, chemists and biologists have broadly supported international agreements that have successfully prohibited chemical and biological weapons, just as most physicists supported the treaties banning space-based nuclear weapons and blinding laser weapons. In summary, we believe that AI has great potential to benefit humanity in many ways, and that the goal of the field should be to do so. Starting a military AI arms race is a bad idea and should be prevented by a ban on offensive autonomous weapons beyond human meaning, beyond meaningful human control. And it I think it, all, it, it does really say yeah. it all. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're with Bite Into It with Simon and Vanessa and uh, Sam pressing our buttons. We, (laughs) I don't know why I feel the need to say that. (laughs) I'm going to stop. If you're interested in the Writers' Festival and where it might cross over with technology, you might want to stay tuned because we've got a a giveaway for an event a little bit later in the show. But first of all, we are very excited to welcome Vanessa Paik to the studio. Welcome. Hi, Vanessa. It's not going to get confusing at all. (laughs) Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been here a couple of times before and I always love coming and hanging with you techno hipsters. Look, we had the pleasure of doing an event together once and you were um, the imitable V1. So I think I can definitely be V2 to your V1 this evening. 
So at the moment you are working at Envato. Envato is an amazing Australian success story, but a lot of people don't know what it does. So could you give us a little bit of background to what is Envato? Yeah, I sure can. So, yeah, I've just recently joined the team in Envato. I've been there about eight weeks, and it is kind of fascinating. It's one of these sort of, you know, sleeping giants of the Australian tech space. I think that those that are really in the technology world probably have heard of it, and certainly a lot of people that actually use the site know mm-hmm. it. But beyond that, um, it's not so widely known. However, it's in terms of its scale, its audience, and its customer base, it's actually pretty enormous. So um, at its heart, Envato is, uh, you know, we like to think of it as your creator creative network. So it's a design and creative assets marketplace business. So all of those bits and pieces that go into making everything from radio shows to movie trailers to websites to apps to uh, jingles to to stock music, all this sort of stuff, all of those digital components. uh, Invada was a bit like an Etsy for those, if Mm -hmm. you like. So we've got this incredible community of 5.5 million creatives all over the world across 200 countries who create this work. So some of them specialise in creating music and audio, some are specialised in things like After Effects files, others specialise in things like WordPress themes and they come and they trade on our marketplace and then people again all over the world from small businesses to micro businesses to bloggers to really large advertising agencies come in and, and, and buy and access those assets to then bring their own creative projects to life. So we sort of have this uh, this network of, of marketplaces. It's definitely a creative ecosystem. Mm. We've got about one and a half million buyers. Um, and I guess something that really distinguishes Invado that I particularly love coming from a community and community management background is that it's a really community-centric business. So, you know, our, our number one business value is, you know, we put the community at the heart of everything we do when they succeed we succeed it's literal in terms of our business model but it also really drives everything that we do um so you know we paid out uh, in the life of the business so far we've paid out around about a quarter of a billion dollars to community members in sales which is pretty cool and we've got some really amazing stories there's around 48 49 uh, community members now have made over a million dollars in sales again all over the world we've got this great story of um one of our members uh, in pakistan who uh, you know created one really popular wordpress theme and it's gone on to sell so many copies that he's been able to build an entire house for his extended family and sort of been able to sort of you know create all these really positive exciting ripples in his own community i think my favorite thing about the business is that um, you, there's lots of platforms out there that will let people bid for work and take one job on and create a product that, as, that another business needs. And often it's, often it's small business to freelancer type work that's going on. But within your structure, you've created a way that um, the freelancer can create uh, one thing and have it used many times, which as a knowledge manager, these are the sort of things you want to see. You want to see value out of someone putting the effort in and making something creative or functional that can then be deployed many times. Yeah, absolutely. We really are interested in that. I guess that lifelong relationship with those community members in that way. So, mm. you know, they can come and come and go and dip in and out of our community, you know, as much as suits their, their lifestyle and their needs. But we do want to create an environment that's hopefully, yeah, compelling and, and value-driven enough for them that, they, yeah, they can stick around and do all sorts of things with us. There's, there's other parts to the business. There's something called Invato Studio, which is where for those freelancers and creatives that maybe want to take on a bit of extra work or do things like bespoke work and be available for that for people, we can connect those creatives with clients that, 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 that need 
need those services as well. So that's mm. another way for them to earn. And we also have a huge educational arm, which is fantastic too, where we have all these free tutorials and then some subscription courses as well that allow everybody to learn everything from you know coding to craft. So really everything across all the creative sectors. So you run a lot of sessions based out of your offices, and your offices are really interesting. Uh, the ones in Melbourne, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, They've got a really modern setup, and uh, knowing that knowing a bit about the company and how it was started as a family business, and it's it's been a, a startup, you know, that's gone massive since two thousand and six, and then that you've kept these really close ties to the community. Because of those type of intersections, I was particularly interested when um, Envato released uh, a reflection upon a report that came out on Australia's future workforce. So the Committee of Economic Development of Australia, that CEDA group, released um, a report all about what our future workforce might look like. And being in the technology space, it's something we get asked about a lot, like our computers doing us out of jobs. But also, I'm in front of a computer all the time, that's hurting my back, how do you cope, Am I, are you going blind, what's happening and your workplace does things really interestingly um so could you tell us a little bit about your take on that report yeah absolutely so i think it particularly resonated with us for for many of the reasons you just said you know we're we're technologists and creatives so we deal with devices and device culture all of the time ourselves so do our creatives but i think beyond that our whole our whole business is about empowering people to you know to kind of live the life that they want and and earn from their passion um whether it's you know literally the people that, that create through the site or even the people that are buying stuff you know it's ultimately about bringing those ideas to life for them as well so we're very interested in any sort of thinking about you know how that can happen how can it be made more easy or or potential blockers that can get in the way so I think we we, you know we, we did some thinking about about our own workplace culture and in particular, some of our flexible working policies. I think, you know, flexible working policies is definitely one of those buzz phrases that's bandied about. And, you know, I think in most respects, you know, it's used when people are really trying to to create a genuinely flexible workplace in some way. But I've certainly worked in workplaces that sort of use that language and I think there's sometimes a bit of a gap between the rhetoric and the reality. Um, you know, and there's often some, some context around why that is. But it's quite rare, I think, that a company is able to bring that to life quite effectively. Um, but Invada really lives what it, you know, it lives what it preaches and what it believes other people should do as well. So I saw us as sitting, I guess, demonstrating what, you know, Malcolm Turnbull and I guess the, the positive framing of that report is talking about this this possible future where we have a, you know, a, a, an optimistic, uh, interconnected uh, economic community but with all of these different businesses, micro-businesses, where people are just kind of empowered and flexible. We... Um, uh, let people work from uh, all over the world to a certain extent. So, you know, we've got a, a core team of employees. We also work with contractors in other countries. On my team alone, I've got folks in Scotland and Vienna, which is really exciting. Um, listen to their fabulous accents all the time. Um, but I guess critically, uh, we take our approach is about personalization and what's what's going to get you closest to doing the best work that's optimal for you. I think my frustration with some of the I suppose the what usually falls in that flexible working camp, it's often in agile-based organisations that, you know, go for the, you know, we're, we're really hip and we have open plan and we really, you know, we all have you know, flat structures and kind of nobody nobody necessarily knows what's going on. But but sometimes that can backfire because ultimately that is that is still a prescribed way of working. Um, 
I think for the reality is most people are somewhere on the spectrum in between, you know, cubicle farms and super-duper uber-agile. What Envato endeavours to do, and we think it's a really healthy model, is to create an environment and a community amongst ourselves as a workplace where you can come in, connect with the business, and we're going to, you know, we're going to help you, give you the tools that you need and create the environments for you to do the best job possible, whether that's working out of a beanbag, working at a standing desk, working from your home office on occasion, or potentially even working on the other side of the world. Mm. You're a global marketplace, and so it's interesting because the report was about an Australian workforce, mm-hmm. uh, whereas potentially you've got people with the same skills uh, living in one of the world's most expensive cities, pitting their wares against people with the same skills living in Thailand, perhaps even people who just moved to Thailand because it was cheap. So. As a global marketplace, how do you see Australian workers who live in Australia competing globally when you know other other people just have to earn so much less than we do? Mm, I think that's a that's a really key question. I think it comes up a lot actually. Um, and Vanessa, I know you and I have talked about this a bit. Uh, in in that digital marketplace land, there's a lot of you know there's some other marketplaces out there as well. And I think uh, sometimes an accusation that that is levelled at those is that you know, and it's definitely an argument that they may devalue you know devalue and or push down the market because you if you if it is too widely open and you've got people competing from not necessarily an even playing field i think so what we try to do in in envato is um kind of like i was saying before it's the same attitude we take as a workplace we try to create a whole network of opportunities so that we're not sort of, it's not just apples and apples and one option. So it's not, you know, you've got to put an item out there into the world, you pick a price and then good luck to you and if somebody in a developing country happens to be able to do it cheaper, well then you know, bad luck to you, it's much more sophisticated than that and much more nuanced. So it respects the fact that, you know, we're talking about, as you said, Vanessa, the life of an item over time. And some of our most popular sales are from a really diverse mix of countries and backgrounds. There really isn't a pattern there. So it's not, you know, our top sellers are not necessarily all from, you know, developing or as they're now calling them kind of lean countries in that way. Um, Some of them are from, you know, the middle of North America and Silicon Valley. So it's really, we don't see those trends playing out in that same way. I think partly because we have introduced um, and built out this whole ecosystem with things like the bespoke opportunities, um, different ways to earn, different ways to connect with us and different ways to, I guess, to to make money and to monetize through the marketplace. So I would say that's part of it. Having said that, you know, it's something we're really aware of and we're always kind of trying to be mindful of so that we don't fall into that trap. We Ultimately, we want to do what's best for all the people that use that marketplace, both buyers and sellers. And I think, you know, devaluing that world is, is doesn't serve anybody. Uh, how how do you handle some of the the time differences in in building that strong community, maintaining the strong community? Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. We have an incredible community team, uh, which is uh, headquartered in Melbourne with the business here, um, and they have, as you would expect, a global team because we've got these you know millions of members that, that hang out on our forums and and, and do stuff. Um, and that team, yeah, basically sort of takes that chase the sun model, so works around the clock um, in different in different time zone and we um, we make heavy heavy use uh, of slack um, as a really great application that we just love as a workplace um, and we even have some of our community members on there as well we have you know teams of really great community moderators and things like that and we really use we really just leverage you know cool awesome lean agile tools uh, for things like video conferencing and all that sort of stuff and I think because we have that approach of 
just show up and be where you need to be to do the best possible job you can. It's not that sort of a militant environment where, you know, you need to keep nine to five hours. Therefore, if you have to take a, vi- a, a video conference call at 7pm, that's going to create all sorts of issues. It's You just need, you know, the, the onus is on you as the individual to figure out a way to connect with the people you need to connect to to get the job done. And then and, and VADA as a business will kind of create, you know, create an environment of tools and a system of tools that lets you do that. Same approach with the community itself. And because they because they're legitimately invested in our shared business together they're really you know equally invested in building a strong culture and helping keep it you know happy and safe and successful you've got what i really like about this market is that you know you've got a lot of options on there you've got you, you can sell all sorts of stuff on there but you can't sell just anything and it seems to me like each product category pardon me is really well thought through in the way that the products are displayed and that you know the the preview that you get uh is you know you get have lots of opportunities to create an enticement for buyers how much work do you need to put into before saying all right we're going to offer this type of digital product now do you then need to get people who create those digital products on the team to say well we need to you know you you know we need to be able to press play or we need this sort of preview or we need is that um i guess how much how much has that grown and have you seen the the rollout of new product categories and how does that work? Yeah, we have actually. I think, again, that, that tight feedback loop with community is really useful in that respect. So it lets, because we're dealing with, uh, obviously, on our own team, a lot of our own team are people that make this stuff as well. So they, they have an, uh, a great understanding of what's required, what they would like as a buyer, like this would be really useful. So this is sort of maybe our starting point. And then we play that back with the community in a great a great deal of detail. We also have some really fantastic um, teams that work with us, some um, again around the world on things like quality assurance, who just to set up some really great processes around, you know, making sure that when people do sort of put their hand up and, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess submit things to be considered for the marketplace that there's you know the right balance struck between uh, having a diverse marketplace but making sure that there is a certain level of quality maintained and then we also obviously our product teams and, and UX designers and things like that work very hard and think quite a lot about the different types of buyer journeys of people coming through that marketplace and what they're going to need and, and all of that the product categories have definitely evolved over time um, they've sort of gone in and out if you like so they in some ways they used to be even more complex and then they sort of got more simple and then they got a bit more complex again but I think that's that's about being ideally in some sort of real-time dialogue with the market. So, you know, we're definitely having conversations now at Envato about what's next for us and what that might look like. We are, you know, growing very, very fast uh, where demand is only increasing. So I think partly to ensure that we don't have that experience where things become devalued because it's sort of finite and yet the demand's increasing, we actually need to work really hard with our community on figuring out, well, how do we keep diversifying and, you know, help help lower the barri- barrier to entry for creating cool stuff and how do we make sure that, you know, all the, all the cool creatives out there are getting a slice of that pie as well. Great. I would love to hear more about this, but we are pushing up on our time. I can't let you out of here without asking you to put on your other hat. And that hat is as Swarm Conference creator, uh, co-creator. It's a sombrero. Yeah. So could you tell us a little about Swarm Conference, which is coming up? Yeah, I would love to. Thank, thank you for asking. So yeah, my other life, I've got a strong background in community management and, um, I co-founded, uh, Australia's Community Management Conference, where all we social media and community nerds hang out. Uh, it's called Swarm. This is in its fifth year. It's on September 2nd and 3rd. 
23rd. It's in Sydney this year. It goes back and forth between Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it's, it's going to be really great. We've got um, some really cool people. We've got a guy named James Klimt, who is the guy behind the awesomely successful Queensland Police social media presence. <laughs> and if you guys have seen that on social media, you'll know what I'm talking about. They are about. the coolest police force on social media. They are. They are the coolest in the world. So we've got James coming to talk about how you how you should colour outside the lines when you're doing this stuff and the value of that. We've also got um, the head of policy for Facebook, Mia Garlic, coming down in Australia to, to talk about what's going on there. Um, Amber Robinson from over at Essential Baby at Fairfax, and they're Australia's largest parenting community. And all sorts of folk from really diverse places, um, startups, big telcos, uh, mental health forums, government not-for-profits. One of the things we like about Swarm is all those different people come together and trade community management tips and stuff. So if people want to learn more, they can go to swarmconference.com.au and we'd love to see you there. Thanks, Vanessa Peck. We'll tweet out that link. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're with Bite Into It, discussing computers and new technology with Simon and Vanessa. We've uh, just been joined by Andy Kitchen. He is a consultant and researcher who specialises in neural networks and machine learning, areas that confuse us greatly. Welcome, Andy. Hey, how you doing, guys? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really good, thanks. How are you? I am very well, super excited. I just uh, spent a lot of money on a new toy, a new computer. Now, this is uh, a a trick that happens in your trade. You can't just buy any old machine. You've got to invest deep. What does this involve? Uh, this involves uh, doing lots of research, getting really excited, looking at your bank balance and feeling bad, and then not feeling bad when the uh, delivery guy walks through the door with your thing, which is black and cool and goes very fast. <laughs> <laughs> so to crunch the sort of data, the sort of numbers that you're looking at, you need a high-powered machine, and these can get quite hot. Uh, definitely. So um, a lot of the recent developments in machine learning have actually been driven by uh, these video cards which people normally use for gaming. So they turn out to be very, very good at doing lots of uh, mathematics needed to display 3D graphics and also the mathematics that you can use to uh, build these things called neural networks. So at the moment when people think of neural networks, if they think of anything, they they might be thinking of Google Deep Dream. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So have you had some interesting questions thrown at you since that's been around? So uh, Deep Dream is something that uh, really excited me. I think it was great work. And in general, I've been following the area of machine creativity and generative models for a long time. So uh, a lot of the time uh, when people talk about machine learning, they're often uh, talking about things which are useful for business but less exciting, such as uh, recommendation systems, for example. Uh, one thing that is it's really interesting to try and teach a machine to do is say, you've seen lots of different dogs or cats or Rembrandts, now make something of your own, generate something. And that's what we call a generative model, because instead of kind of learning to just predict, it learns to make. And that excites me a lot. And it really captured the public imagination. Mm, mm. Often when on this show we've spoken to people about neural networks, they've been investigating trying to help machines understand language. Now, why would people want to do something like that? So um, I think that out there in the world, uh, there is a huge wealth of uh, information locked up in uh, ways that 
computers can't conventionally understand very easily. So that's, uh, for example, uh, text, like a news article, uh, might have really interesting facts in it that we want to expose to the computer. A picture or a video uh, might have kind of uh, actions or stories inside, which we can't really search for yet. You can't go into YouTube and say, give me a video of a man doing a backflip while whistling the tune of uh, Yankee Doodle. Um, so uh, some work that Facebook is doing right now is trying to get neural nets, for example, to even understand what sport is being played in a video. So watch the video and say, hey, this is basketball or uh, downhill unicycling. That's pretty exciting. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the recommendations side of things. Do you mean that there aren't actually people saying, if you liked this book, you might like this book? Oh, there's one guy. He's (laughs) really quick, though. (laughs) He's great at recommending things. That's fantastic. (laughs) So, But uh, I always assumed that that was just generated by tagging and like i'd never really past thought, con- customer behavior past customer behavior and you know just vast troves of metadata which where does that sort of computing stop and ai begin mm. um i think that that's a really really interesting question and is sort of uh the ai side of things is what's getting people really excited. Um, It's something that people want to engage with. It's something they want to know more about. And with something like Deep Dream, it really catches the public consciousness in a way that getting recommended uh, four different books doesn't. So uh, really, uh, the simpler uh, systems, the simpler machine learning systems are very much, as you said, based on statistics. So we basically uh, just build a model that says, well, people who kind of bought these things together will buy other things together. And it's not really very interesting. And it's impossible to imagine how that, as good at recommending things as it is, will ever turn into uh, Mozart. Uh, maybe maybe we can recommend the next note. <laughs> Did you like E? You might like C. <laughs> I'll give you an E again. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, um, so what I- these models that we're building now, what's much more exciting about them, and especially about neural networks, is they're much less about r- simple statistics and aggregation and more about finding patterns in the world and we see finding patterns in the world as a big step towards uh, a machine that is actually uh, intelligent and might think somewhat like a person so humans as humans we're guilty of maybe sometimes finding patterns where there aren't patterns Mm. are computers prone to the same problem uh so uh, definitely and in fact um a huge amount of the breakthrough research right now in neural networks is in some ways trying to uh, <laughs> make them learn uh, worse, but, but not worse in a better way. So um, there is actually a, a one a funny story. The uh, Department of Defense was tr- trying to create a system that could tell the difference between um, uh, enemy combatants and uh, friendly uh, targets. So they built this system and it, it exhibited, I think, a 99% accuracy rate and they said, great, we're going to go test it in the field. They went and ran it and it 
turned out it started saying that everyone was in fact enemy of course because it was built by the dod but also <laughs> because actually they realized that most of the photos of the uh enemies had been taken during the na- day but friends in, in under different lighting conditions at a different time of day so the machine had actually learned to just tell in the photo what time of day it was it actually hadn't learned this kind of real difference between um a, a friend and a foe it's interesting that you brought up the Department of Defence because we started this show with the open letter from a bunch of eminent scientists warning against the use of AI to develop autonomous weapons. What's your take on that? Uh, so uh, I um, am very interested in this subject. And in fact, uh, recently... Um, booked a a philosophy professor from Monash to talk at the Machine Learning and AI Meetup, which we will tweet about later, um, to talk about this very subject. So here are my thoughts. The systems that we worry about, autonomous systems, exist today. There are cruise missiles which can fly in the air for up to 40 minutes to an hour, waiting till it sees something that looks like a tank. Not a truck, not a person, but a tank, and then destroy that tank. So in terms of um, machines that can make autonomous targeting decisions, that can um, navigate by themselves, that can even have simple sub-goals, they already exist. They are something that have been used in conventional warfare already. Uh, I think the thing that people really talk about when they say kind of, you know, when they think of Terminator and uh, evil AI and war AI is uh, a machine learning system which is also made for war. Because the difference between this cruise missile and, say, the Terminator is the cruise missile will always have that behaviour. It was created to have only one way of thinking and one goal. Whereas if we created a learning system it could possibly do something that it was never originally designed to do by learning from its environment. It could, it could learn to be cruel, and it could learn to be uh, exploitative. It could be so, captured and neural network washed. <laughs> uh, it, the, the, the manipulation of one neural network by another or an adversary would become a serious problem uh, mm-hmm. because simply it would not have simple behaviour and simple goals anymore. It would have complex changing behavior that's changed by the environment and uh, would also have very complex kind of internal objectives which we might not know about and it might not even know how to explain to us so that's scary yeah that is that's scarier than cruise missiles which are also scary much scarier than cruise missiles or so-called drones which are actually just you know flying remote remote control helicopters um so with that in mind, and you've got a better idea of how close that sort of thing is than many people, what do you think, what steps do you think need to be taken to stop that from happening, to stop those sorts of learning machines being deployed in the field? Is it just, you know, is it just a bunch of hippies saying, <laughs> please stop this when in fact it's actually going to happen? Or is are the sorts of, uh, I guess, I mean, would your black box that you put together of parts from around the world be able to do this? Or is this something that, at least in the short term, is going to need major government investment and could be stopped by a treaty? So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot Sorry. of bits there, but yeah, let's unpack it. Um, in terms of uh, kind of some sort of rogue actor possessing uh, artificial intelligence, kind of like a terrorist artificial intelligence, we're a very long way from that. I think that uh, very autonomous, very conscious 
systems are not something that uh, is around in the foreseeable future. There are lots of exciting developments in pattern recognition, comprehension, even very simple question answering, but how we bridge the gap from simple pattern recognition or complex pattern recognition into full-blown consciousness is a complete unknown, and nobody in the world knows how to solve that problem, Uh, although Google is spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to figure it out. Mm. the, the second thing I would say in terms of um, uh, weapons of war and technology being used for war, I, I see it as absolutely inevitable. Uh, every time there's been a technological development, I think uh, there have been uh, critics, for example, when uh, submarines were first created, people saw them as an extremely, extremely dishonourable way to go about warfare. But now nuclear submarines are kind of, the, in some ways, the epitome of modern the cold state-to-state warfare or kind of threat-based war. So um, I think that we will definitely see um, much more complex, uh, much more sophisticated autonomous weapon systems in uh, the the kind of the wars between countries. I think that is there's no way to escape it. What I think will happen is that we won't allow hu- we, we will make we'll need humans to make the decision to kill other humans whereas robots will be able to essentially have free range on other robots i think that will probably be where our treaties end up that will be the ro- that will be the robot geneva convention i think terminator killing a soldier is scary terminator accidentally killing a civilian incredibly scary terminator killing other terminator is something that that countries want, that large, powerful, militaristic nations want and can justify. Andy, we've gone down a military hole here, but <laughs> for people who just want to learn more and get some practical skills up and and uh, maybe figure out if, if they've got some aptitudes in this field, where can they get together with you and find out more? Yeah, so uh, I have been trying to build the um, kind of machine learning and AI community in Melbourne. So there is a machine learning and AI meetup. You can Google Melbourne machine learning and AI meetup and you can go to our events. They're scheduled regularly and uh, there's something for everyone. Uh, You can, for all skill levels, both both advanced and 100% just beginner interested, um, you will also tweet that link um, after the show. Uh, I think that one of the things that has been very, very exciting is that because a lot of these, um, a lot of this research has been conducted in the open, and a lot of uh, the tools you need to do it are uh, on kind of you can just buy the commodity hardware to run these new machine learning models. It's something you can really do at home, uh, and actually, and and here's here's an interesting thought for you guys, and I think this will. This is a good way to close. Um, there is this notion that the frontiers of science are very far away from us. So, for example, if you want to know about something that is extremely high energy, then you need to go to high energy physics, and that's kind of a world away. Or, so it's either very big or very small or very, very, very hot or very, very cold. But our brain is right in the room with us, and it's it's the new frontier of science, and everyone has one. Yeah. So, <laughs> Andy, thank you so much. We have to rush off. Thanks for your time this evening. We've got to rush off and hear some spots, and then we'll be back with a couple of events before we go. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 
last bit of bite with Simon, Vanessa and Sam. We are just going to run through a couple of events for the week, as we love to do. And the most topical one is the drone opera. So Matthew Sleeth has, has put together this amazing creation. It's running at the Arts House at the Meat Market um, from Thursday the 10th to Sunday the 13th of September. It's a 45-minute show. And if you're into exploring the drone experience, there will be live drones there. Robin Fox is involved, so there's lasers there too. And uh, I think that, you know, never has theatre been so well targeted towards our audience. So, so do check out a drone opera. It sounds really interesting. Uh, you can, if you're more in a virtual frame of mind, uh, join in from Melbourne in Finland's global quantum game jam. Uh, the Melbourne branch is led by friend of the program, Maze Wallen, and Media Lab Melbourne uh, from September 18 to 20. So it's a 48-hour game jam founded in fin- Finland, uh, and participants are given video prompts, prompts by quantum scientists, then have 48 hours to make something. It can be any interpretation of game, a theatre piece, a playful task, a poem, a dance. Uh, So Media Lab Melbourne will be host to many, many game makers, hardware hackers, theatre people, you name it. If you're one of those people who likes to play and make play, it could be something you'd be really interested in. So our final bit of drone news for the evening is that... um the Mr. Burger in 2014 put out a video, a fake video of them delivering burgers by by drone. Now, Monash University for Open Day decided to make this a reality. They got together with Mr. Burger. <laughs> they got together um, with the XM2 drones, and then they got some Monash students to go at it. And their engineering and IT students had a go at um, customising these to be perfect hamburger delivery vehicles, and they delivered them from one side of the campus to another just for the heck of it go monash that is fantastic i'm super pleased um i think the people who actually managed to drive those drones might be candidates for the drone opera in terms of the choreography involved i think that's true so um right angle studios are involved the guys behind 3000 uh so we'd love to see a video if there's something out there by the end of the decade i want to see those those drones learning to make the burgers and then cooking them for us. That would be great. We want to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Vanessa Paik and Andy Kitchen. Thanks for sharing all that info with us. Thank you for listening. We've been bite into it, and we'll be back next Wednesday evening and coming up soon, Radiothon, so do keep your ears out on the station. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.